Hello and welcome to the SureSkills Learn to Grow podcast. My name is Simon Bean. I am the host. This week I'm talking to Kingsley Aikens, who is the CEO of the Networking Institute. In our chat, we talk about the difference between knowledge and skills, the importance of interpersonal relationships in career progress, and why continuous learning from a vast range of sources is key to your value as a networker. Kingsley is an incredible speaker, teeming with wisdom and so much experience. I got so much out of this conversation, I just really enjoyed talking to him. And I suggest you get ready with a pen and paper to jot down all of the uh, reading recommendations that he has. This is Kingsley Aikens. I hope you enjoy it. Kingsley, good afternoon. Hi, Simon. How are you? I'm fantastic. I'm great. Thank you so much for taking the time to join me on this Friday. Um, How's it going? It's all good. It's a sunny day here in Dublin. And you know, as one from this part of the world, what a rare occurrence that is come autumn. So we're happy campers on that sense. That's great. I'm glad to hear it. So listen, a a few years ago, I read a book by Adam Grant called Give and Take, and and the book blew me away. And one of the things I think we sometimes think about networking is that it's it's an avenue to get something. But really, networking is about giving, isn't it? You know, you're spot on. And I've read Adam Grant's book and other books by him. He's terrific. And I think he nailed it. He absolutely nailed it because so many people think, you know, networking is getting something from myself. I need a job. I got to get a sale. So I'm going to network. So it's about me, 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 me. But actually, if you take a sort of a 360 on that and say, actually, I'm going to think in networking in terms of what can I do to other people? It's extraordinary how that actually works to your advantage. So it's based on a very simple premise. The more you give to individuals, the more it comes back from the network. And the more that you don't keep score, you don't say, hey, Simon, I did you a favor six months ago. You owe me one, sunshine. The more you kind of get away from that, don't keep score, the more it comes back to you. It's wonderful, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. I've heard you say that, that the world is about connected clusters of creative people, right? I love that phrase. Uh, and I think that's also what productive workplace environments co- tend to look like. So if that's true, how do you go about building and facilitating connected clusters of people? Well, you know, what drove that comment for me was a sort of realization that, um, you know, technology and communications have kind of changed everything. And I think possibly for the first time in the world, it's, it's more important what you do than where you are, which is an interesting notion. In the old days, I think your geography dictated your identity. If you lived in Southern California, that's who you were. But you can actually live in Southern California, but also be engaged back to your country or of origin or ancestry or heritage. And you can be totally committed to Southern California, but also very interested in Poland or Scotland or wherever it is you're from. And I think that introduced a whole new set of dynamics, if you like, to networks. Um, One of the the interesting things I found about this this awful virus of COVID-19, which has come upon us, it actually opens up opportunities for us to use technology like we're doing today to reach out and connect to people all over the world. And that's happening now more than ever, which is kind of interesting in that, you know, geography is no longer a barrier. You know, we say geography is history, if you know what I mean. So, so what's interesting now is that, you know, you're not restricted geographically in what we're doing. People could be listening to this from the Falkland Islands or from Tierra del Fuego or who knows that's really quite exciting. And in fact, despite the awfulness of COVID-19, and it is awful, it's opening up some opportunities for all of us to connect. Um, people are available, which is interesting. You know, we're in lockdown here. So people keep ringing me and saying, are you around next week? Of course I'm around next week. I ain't going anywhere. I can't go anywhere. That's interesting. Also, 
you know, I can connect with you and lots of people around the world. It doesn't cost me anything. It's actually free. And I've always found free a very compelling price point. I don't know about you. <laughs> <laughs> That's a very attractive price point. So, so you don't have to spend money on travel or time or carbon footprint or grooming time <laughs> to connect with people. You can actually do it. You can connect with them. And, and here's something else. You know, 700 million people in the world have told this one company, LinkedIn, all their personal details about education, experience and qualifications and hobbies and interests. And they said, here, you can have it and you can have it for free. And now we can find out loads and loads of information about people and you can find elements of connectivity and contact. So I think this is, um, this is kind of fascinating. So we've been accelerated into this online stuff over the last six or nine months. And I think when we get through this crisis, and it's important to remember we will get through it, you know, as Lincoln, Abraham Lincoln said, this too shall pass. We will get through it. And then we go back to perhaps more traditional forms of face-to-face -face networking, but we also will have developed this online dimension. So I think it's fascinating for the topic of networking, how you now can have this two-tier approach, which I think will put you in a better position at the end of this. Following up on that then, how do we strike a balance between using technology and remaining connected, right? Because we're, we're hyper-connected with technology, but we're also kind of increasingly distant in that we are alone behind a computer or you know, facing a, a screen on a phone. How do we reconcile those two things to strike a happy medium? Yeah, look, I think you're, you're touching on the great problem that we're all facing at the moment. But it actually was spotted some years ago by a woman called Sherry Turkle. Sherry Turkle is a professor at MIT, and she wrote a book called Alone Together. And the essence of the book is that, you know, it's fantastic. Technology is magnificent. It's connecting us with everybody all around the world at the click of a switch. But, she said, we're all alone in front of a screen. And even though COVID-19 is an awful global pandemic, and even though climate change is very serious, I think the great crisis of the world is actually loneliness. And I think that's a big issue. And I think technology is helping in some areas, but exacerbating in other areas. And I work with a lot of companies. I work with a lot of tech companies. And one of the interesting things that I, I hear managers saying to me is that they find that their teams of people, they talk to each other electronically, but they don't speak to each other interpersonally so that whole water cooler interchange the coffee the coffee the the serendipitous bumping into people a lot of that has been starched out of our lives and i think that's too a deter that's a deterrence so i think that's a problem and we need to watch that it's interesting i'm reading uh, simon brown is the chief learning officer the clo at novartis and he wrote a book called the curious advantage and the kind of the, the phrase on the front of the book is curiosity is the greatest driver of value in the digital age. And I thought that was really interesting because it's the digital age, right? But the greatest driver of value is an interpersonal skill or a soft, quote unquote, soft skill. Would you say that make the same argument for the likes of interpersonal skills like networking and communication that in the digital age, that's still the greatest driver of, of value? Yeah, look, I completely agree with that. And I'd love to, I haven't read that book, The Curious Advantage, so I've just written it down, so I will be getting that over the weekend. I think it was Tim Cook of Apple said that, you know, curiosity equals innovation. And so, you know, I think this is an incredibly important thing to be curious, to ask questions that start with who, what, when, where, why, how, you know, to to have a curious mind, to to be able to see laterally, to see around corners, you know, to be consistently. I think the number one skill in a great networker is to ask really great questions and by definition then to listen. 
So I think we live in a world where most people don't listen. I think we live in a world where we think listening is a form of weakness, that in fact uh, speaking is a form of power and control and being, being an expert was listening is seeing being apathetic or not knowing about something. But the harsh reality is you learn nothing when you're speaking. When you're speaking, you're only repeating what you already know or what you've just read. But when you're listening, you know, you're really learning. So the challenge for all of us is to be what I call, you know, to be a generative listener, to listen not just to what somebody is saying, but for what they might be saying next, to see listening as a form of activity, to, to use listening as a proactive thing that you do. And I think that, you know, that's goes counter to what a lot of people think. And so being a great listener is the number one skill to being a great networker. Thinking about networking, Dan, and its role in, in people's lives, I was looking at a statistic there about, you know, the, the relationship between employees and employers has really evolved in the last 10, 15 years or 10, 20 years even. And I think the average tenure now for an employee aged 25 to 34 is something right around three years. If you are changing roles, you know, or changing companies roughly every three years, you better get good at selling yourself and you better be able to network and to meet new people, right? Completely. I mean, look, one introduction, one conversation can change your life. But here's the thing. They don't happen lying in bed. They don't happen sitting at your desk. You know, conversations and serendipitous opportunities happen when you're in motion, when you're out and about, when you put your talents on display. When you talk to strangers, and that's an interesting thing, talking to strangers, because what do we teach our kids from a very young age? We say, don't talk to strangers. <laughs> Statistically, our kids are at more danger from friends and family than they are from strangers. <laughs> and and we've a, we've a, there's, a, there's an old Latin concept, sounds a bit fancy, a word called homophily. Homophily is the tendency we all have to spend time with people who are just like us, you know, when you think about it, Simon, we go to, we were born into families with people like us. We go to school, we play sport, we go on holidays, you know, we work with them, we marry them, and we produce more of them. But here's, <laughs> here's the reality of the world that we live in. I mean, I live in your old town of Dublin. When I grew up, it was male, pale, and stale. It was not a very international city. Dublin today, think of the, city, think of the country you live in, in the US. 14% of the US were not born in the US. In Ireland, it's 17%. In Dublin, it's 25%. But of the working age population of Dublin, it's 33%. But here's the question. Does your network reflect the diversity of the economy you work in, the society you live in? And the answer is always no, it doesn't. So unless that happens, all the research by the great you know, the McKinsey's and Baines and all these companies says that if you do not reflect as an individual and as a company, the diversity of the culture you're working in, you underperform. So I think that's a very interesting challenge we all have. And that thing about talking to strangers, which is something we all, we all hate going into a room where we know nobody, but actually seeking out what I call unlike-minded people, spending time with people who don't look like you, is really, really important. Because we tend to, you know, migrate back into, as the South African term, into our lagers, you know, and only hang around with people just like us. And the problem with that is that not only do you know these people, you know their views and opinions, you know their friends, and you know their views and opinions. There was some great research done by an American uh, psychologist uh, or social scientist called Granovetter, who said that your next job will come from your weak connections, not from your strong connections, which is really interesting. But what he's saying is your weak connections will actually bridge you into all sorts of different types of networks. 
Whereas your strong connections, you know all about them and what they stand for. But you're also right about companies. So in the old days, companies outlived individuals. You know, I think of my dad from Navan County Mead, left school at 14, joined a company, and left that company age 77. Just a quick 63 years in one company. <laughs> Those days are gone, you know? You said the average length of a company is about 20 years. The average length of a C-suite executive you gave it there is, is just minuscule number of years. So you're going to be moving like ever before. I've got kids coming out of college here in Ireland, and you know they're going to be in all sorts of jobs in all sorts of places. But here's the thing. The university system, the school system, fantastic at teaching these kids, kids knowledge and information rather than skills. And networking is a skill. Networking is, as you said earlier, a soft skill. And unfortunately, the word soft makes it sound like weak or squishy. But in fact, it's really important. I mean, Google did a project called Project Oxygen a few years ago to find out what makes a leader in Google. And you can go online and read it, Project Oxygen. And they always hired technically geniuses. They're founded by two amazing Russian technical geniuses, Larry Page and Sergey Brin. Their staff were all, you know, PhDs and masters in mathematics and science and all that stuff. And they found that you needed eight characteristics to be a leader in Google. And they discovered that the eighth and least important characteristic was technical ability. They found mm -hmm. all the other characteristics that you need to be a leader in Google were what we would call soft skills. You know, communication, collaboration, mentoring, working in groups, working in teams. Because you see, the old hierarchical company structures you know, which is the boss in the corner office at the top, has been replaced, that sort of vertical world of hierarchies, by a horizontal world of teams and teams of teams, where collaboration, cooperation, connecting, having relationships is critically important. And here's what many people miss out. They don't realize that the technical skills they need to get their job in the first instance, important as they are, uh, become less important as you progress in your career and relationships become more important. And that's a very interesting inflection point that many people don't, don't spot. And we also tend to tend to buy into the classic parental advice. I don't know if you got it when you were leaving Ireland when you were 18, but I certainly got it from my parents after college. Work hard, keep your head down, and keep out of trouble. Really poor yeah. advice, you know? <laughs> <laughs> Do the opposite. <laughs> Well, actually, there's a, great American, there's a great American called Harvey Coleman. I'm a huge fan. Harvey Coleman wrote a book about career progress, and, and he had a thing called the PIE theory, P-I-E. And P stands for performance. And he said something which sounds outrageous. He said, how well you do your job contributes 10% to your career progress. Surely, that's crazy. Surely, it's 90%. Do a super job, and you will soar. And he said, no. He said, everybody does a super job. It's the minimum to get into the company. It'll get you on the pitch. It'll get you on the ladder, but it won't get you up the ladder. Career progress is about going up the ladder. He said you get paid on performance. You get, you get promoted on what other people think of your potential. So now he's introducing two pesky little words, Simon, other people. Now he's introducing <laughs> perception and judgment. Subjectivity comes into play on your career. And the I of his uh, career, pro career progress concept of PI stands for image, what people think of you. What's your reputation? What are you known for? What are you go-to person for? Your reputation is what somebody says about you when you're not in the room. And now he says that's 30% of your career progress. 
So that leaves the E of the pie theory, which is 60%. And he says 60% of your career progress depends on exposure. Who's seen mm. your action? Who's seen you perform? Who's seen you deliver? Who's seen you speak publicly? Who's seen you at meetings? I mean, this is, I think, incendiary, revolutionary stuff. But every time I do this to a group of senior executives and ask them, what do you think? They all say, you know what? It's about right. Now, you don't get taught this stuff at school or college. But this is, you know, the unwritten rules of life. I, I love a woman called Carla Harris, who is a C-A-R-L-A Harris. I say this because go on YouTube, go on TED Talks. She's magnificent. 35 years in Morgan Stanley. But she says you need something else. You need a sponsor. A mentor talks to you. A sponsor talks about you. And the reason it's important, she says, is because every decision about your career, your next promotion, the next project that you get will be taken by people sitting around a table in a room and you won't be in that room. Wow. So you need somebody who's going to carry your paper, who's going to speak for you. And if you don't have a relationship with that person, nobody is going to speak up on your behalf. Now, it's harsh stuff, but it's totally true. <laughs> yeah, it's a wild concept, isn't it? It is totally true. That's, that's certainly been my experience. <laughs> yeah. You've mentioned the fact that in education, we don't teach networking skills, right? And we don't, you know, generally, we don't teach, we don't teach soft skills anywhere near as much as we, we should. And I think that seems like something you're, a gap you're trying to bridge in what you're doing with the Networking Institute. And I'm coming back to, you know, Simon Sinek's famous TED Talk. He talks about the fact that the most successful organizations focus not on what they do, but on why they do what they do. Your, your concept of Me, Inc. seems to be kind of a, a an individualized version of that approach, which is to help people focus on their why to make progress in their networks, in their roles, in their careers. Would you agree with that? And and can you talk a little bit about your, your Me Inc. approach? Yeah. So it's not, you know, I have to quickly say, it's not unique to me. In fact, you know, I'm, <laughs> I have to admit, so I'm a founder member of a group called CASE, which stands for Copy and Steal Everything, right? So you know. <laughs> there's a lot of members in that group, isn't there? <laughs> but, uh, and the reason I say that is because this was an idea which was projected by Tom Peters. Now, you're too young to remember. He's one of the great management consultants, a bit of a guru back in the day in the late 90s. He wrote a, an article in Fast Company magazine uh, entitled Me, Inc. And he said, you know, you are chairman, managing director, and marketing director of, an, of a company called Me, Inc. It's you. So essentially what he's saying, you have to take responsibility for your own career. You can't rely on other people to be lying awake at night worrying about your career. You have to take responsibility for it. So allying that to your other point is I do think it's there is a great a greater desire now to have purpose, a sense of purpose in organizations. And I think COVID-19 is going to be quite interesting. I think people are watching how companies are performing throughout this. And I think they will punish companies who they think might be doing the wrong thing or the worst thing. So I think that that's an interesting combination of those two notions of that kind of idea of me taking responsibility, creating your own personal brand. And, you know, I, I've always felt a bit uncomfortable about that expression of personal brand because it makes you sound like a tin of beans or something. But, but the reality is, you know, you have a personal brand, whether you like it or not. In fact, not having a personal brand is having a personal brand. And so, you know, the question you have to ask yourself is, do you want to determine what your personal brand is or do you want other people to determine what it is? And when you let other people determine your personal brand, it's generally not the personal brand that you're all that comfortable with. And so this is an interesting notion of this 
creating your own personal brand and seeing that as a way of, and it's all about just finding out what's true and authentic about yourself, but making sure that other people know. And of course, social media now allows you to do that on a, on a much accelerated and uh, extensive way. I want to follow up on that, but in kind of a roundabout way. So you've done a lot of work with Ireland's diaspora nationally and done some incredible things, mobilizing people around the national culture for the benefit of the country generally. And you have this idea of the nation as a, as a global notion. Could you explain a little bit about the concept of diaspora capital? Yeah, so I've always been fascinated by this. So we're just, there are 270 million people now who live outside the country they were born in. I mean, if it was a country, it'd be the fifth largest country in the world. So that's gone up from 150 million in 1990. So, you know, migration has been one of the phenomenon of the last few decades. But well, the migration is probably one of the most toxic words in the English language. It kind of conjures up images of, you know, jungles in Calais or, you know, trains of people moving up through Central America or tragically babies lying drowned on beaches in Greece. So, so but the reality is that, you know, migrants have actually been huge contributors, uh, you know, to the countries in which they live in. And in fact, the statistics for the contribution of migrants to Fortune 500 companies is incredible. I mean, you think that, you know, probably the most successful company in the world today, Apple, was started by the son of, of Syrian migrants. Um, you know, Andy Grove from Intel or all these different companies, migrate, migrants have done extraordinary things. Diaspora is a more positive word. And my notion of diaspora capital is that, you know, people can live hyphenated lives. They can be engaged and live in the country they live in, but also can be helpful and supportive of the country which they either were born in or ancestrally were connected or even have an affinity with because they might have studied there for a while. Mm -hmm. So I think companies, I think countries, you know, have such a thing as diaspora capital, which is made up of three flows, flows of people. We talked about that, flows of money. And you know, the biggest flows of money in the world today uh, are remittances. It's about a trillion dollars a year that goes through the bank and not through the bank, which is moves from one country to another country, basically people sending money home. And we're actually seeing in uh, during COVID uh, an increase in COVID-related remittances to people to support families, etc., in different places. So it's remittances of, of, of people, and people, remittances of money, and remittances of knowledge, and that technology is making that knowledge transfer so possible. So I think that every country has varying degrees of diaspora capital. You know, it's not a it's not a, a fancy uh, notion. I mean, if you think about it, universities and you were at one has a diaspora. You know, they they don't call it that; they call it alumni. But yep. you look at just how alumni and the U.S. university alumni model is phenomenal, and it's been it's it's been exported around the world. And in this case, it's, we call it diaspora. And in fact, here's an interesting thing. Companies have diasporas. In fact, the most effective company diaspora in the world is McKinsey. So McKinsey have 30,000 people who used to work for McKinsey, and they've gone all over the world. But McKinsey keep in touch with them. And if you change jobs, they tell everybody. They, they have run events. They just they create this kind of notion of a McKinsey family around the world. And by the way, guess where these people refer business back to? So there's a bit of self-interest in this. And we also have this phenomenon now of boomerang employees, people who work for a company, then they leave for a while, and then they come back. Because pre-COVID, the big crisis in the business world was the attraction and retention of talent. How do you find more people and how do you hang on to them? And so you know, company diasporas was an interesting answer to that. Fascinating. I, I love that concept because it seems so counterintuitive for, for companies and organizations to take yeah. that diaspora approach and say, we're going to have an alumni network. You know, you think about 
the significant cost of employee turnover as a huge negative for these companies. But for these guys to say, well, let's turn that into something positive and, and expand our reach around the world and create a culture around what it means to work at this place, right? Well, you see, there is this notion of network intelligence, you know, that, that here's, here's, the, here's the, it's based on a simple premise. There are more smart people outside your company than inside your company. <laughs> yeah. So your staff, your, your employees, if you support them in terms of building up and being better at networking, they become a source of information and knowledge. If you like intelligence of what's going on in the marketplace, what's going on in, in different countries. In fact, you know, Reid Hoffman, who founded LinkedIn, I mean, he's got an interesting book out about this. And he, he talks in terms of when people are being hired in, in, in uh, LinkedIn, one of the questions they're asked is, how can we help you get your next job? <laughs> they're actually encouraging you to spend a bit of time and then move on and do something else. I mean, that, that wasn't a question my dad was asked when he did this quick <laughs> 60, 70 <laughs> years in his company. It's funny, isn't it? I think it's hugely positive uh, that we're moving towards a place where employ for workplace culture is hugely important and it's a huge selling point. And you mentioned attracting and retaining talent. You know, Glassdoor has made made companies held companies accountable, or at the likes of Glassdoor, where you know when somebody's seeking employment, they're they're looking at what the culture is like at this place, and they're looking at the best places to work lists and things like that, and then everything is gearing towards empowering employees to take control, like you're saying, like Reed Hoffman did, to take control of their own roles and careers to the point where they know it might not even be best for us, <laughs> right? That you might move on and take your talents elsewhere. But we're going to empower you to do that because we're yeah. confident in what we're providing here. I think that's really interesting and fascinating and very mature, if you like, because you know things things have changed. So you know this notion that you know what you learned in school and college will see you through life. I mean that's just not sufficient anymore. So you have to retrain, reskill, uptrain, upskill right throughout your life. So 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 that's just something you have to keep doing. I think the other thing that's interesting is we now live in a world where it's more important what you do than where you are. You know, that's fascinating as well. It's what you do is important rather than, than where you're located. So, so now, you know, you could be on a, you know, an island in Greece for all I know doing this. Uh, so, so, so I think that's, again, technology aiding and abetting a degree of flexibility in how we perform our skills. It's also a responsibility, right? If it's what you do, then there's a certain amount of agency that comes with that and responsibility yeah. to take control of your own path. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you can connect now. You know, you can put all the vets in the world together. You can put all the, you know, it's kind of in those verticals and in those niches. You can get people who have common interests, no matter where they are, connecting with each other. That could never happen before. That leads me nicely into you were, um, you, you quote, left, right, and center from all sorts of different books and places and people and, you know, diverse sources. Uh, and, and I know from earlier, because I, I mentioned a book and you, I, I saw you writing it down, and I know you're going to go and get that book this weekend. How important is continuous learning from a vast range of sources to your value as a networker? Well, I suppose, uh, you know, just I've lived in six countries around the world. I lived in Australia for eight years. I was France for two years. I was London for seven years. I was Boston for 14 years. I'm 10 years here. You add it all up, Simon, I'm about 106. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, I've lived in lots of different places. I've been exposed to lots of different people. I mostly arrived in those countries not knowing a sinner. Now, I met a lot of sinners 
when I got there. But I, you know, I had to start. So for me, that diversity was very important. For me, that uh, reaching out to people, giving people, you know, uh, giving them an open slather to do whatever, I found that was really, really important to my makeup. And so I had an intense degree of curiosity. I'm always interested in meeting new people. I find, frankly, I find this lockdown really, I'm struggling with it, you know. Uh, I have okay. to be honest, um, you know, I'm locked away here. It's uh, I'm not connecting with anybody. I make my calls and I do my best uh, technologically, but I am missing. I'm very much missing um, that interaction, that water cooler moment, bumping into people in the street, going off and having a, having a pint, um, all gone. And as I said in the video the other day, you know, there's no more crack. And, and a crack in Ireland, as you know, is not what people might, <laughs> might think it is. It's just an expression about having fun and having some mischief and uh, taking the mickey out of other people is what crack's all about. Missing. Crack is always best in person, right? Totally, yeah. <laughs> One of the challenges with this technology is it's quite hard to use humor, you know? Speaking of uh, a little bit of humor, so I, I watched your TED Talk. Not that your TED Talk. Well, your TED Talk was funny because I know you use humor as a way to kind of connect with people. So I watched your TED Talk, really enjoyed it. I did happen to notice that you had some notes scribbled on the palm of your hand. <laughs> now, well, so my question for you is, is that a speaking technique or a memorization thing? Or was that the list of the shopping you had to pick up on the way home? <laughs> it was essentially cheating, you know? So... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> so you know, I, the TED formula is kind of interesting for you. it's eighteen minutes, right? It's on a red, round red carpet. You're out there, you know. There was a thousand people in the audience, but I couldn't see anybody. Blinding lights, and you've eighteen minutes, and you've no notes, and uh, you know. So it was kind of scary. And I, I, I did a practice and struggled, and I said, well, I'm just going to cheat. I'm just going to write a few little words in in ink on my hand, and it all <laughs> it all went fine. And then I got a bit. I was going okay, and towards the end. I got a bit excited and I stuck my hand straight up in the air. And of course, everybody could see all these <laughs> in my hand, which was not a pound of eggs and a bucket of. So, so I actually, <laughs> when I talked finished, I got a call from my, my youngster, uh, Darcy, I think it was. And she said, Hey, Dad, you're a cheater, and the whole world knows. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. Listen, Kingsley, you, uh, I feel like, you know, I've heard you speak a few times and every interview you give is a bit like a demonstration of the concepts that you're talking about. And you're, you're a real master of the concepts that you espouse. And I really appreciate that. Um, and the work you do for people and, and for Ireland is really important. Uh, and I want to thank you for that. And I want to thank you for taking the time to hang out and chat with me and work through technical difficulties and uh, spend your Friday afternoon chatting with me. So I really appreciate it. Thank you, Simon. Anytime, as they say. Absolutely. Well, listen, enjoy your weekend and uh, let's stay in touch. You bet. Thanks a million. Bye-bye. Thanks, Kingsley. That was the great Kingsley Akins. Uh, really enjoyed that one. I hope you did too. As usual, I will put any relevant links in the show notes. Thanks again for taking the time to listen. All the best.